Welcome to another Practical Neurology podcast. This is the Editor's Choice podcast, where we discuss our topic of the latest edition of Practical Neurology with its authors, providing us with the opportunity to dive into some really fascinating topics. I'm Amy Ross-Russell, I'm an ST6 Neurology trainee in Wessex, and I'm really excited to have three new guests today in my first international podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. William Diprose, who is a stroke neurologist and neuroradiology fellow in Sydney. Dr. Neil Anderson, who's a general neurology consultant at Auckland Hospital, and also Dr. Anthony Jordan, who's a clinical immunologist and physician at Auckland City Hospital with a particular interest in auto-inflammatory conditions. And that's the topic of today's podcast. We're going to discuss their fantastic review of auto-inflammatory conditions and how they present in neurological practice. We'll talk about mechanisms of disease activity, go through some particular cases, mention chameleons and mimics to be aware of and talk about what you can do to help these patients. I'd just like to remind listeners there's a link to the paper online which is uh, in the description below the podcast and I'd really recommend downloading that and having a read. It's incredibly accessible and it's a really great resource to refer back to. So Will, Neil and Anthony, thank you for joining me. You're really welcome. Uh, Thank you for your amazing paper. What I really loved about it is you've you've somehow translated these <laughs> really scary and complicated rarities to a, a well-defined group of, of disorders and you've given them shared characteristics so I can now fit it in my neurological filing system. But you've also given us some great practical clinical tips on how we spot them. Neil, perhaps we could start by just talking about how you came to write this review and, and why you think it's so important that neurologists know about these conditions. Yeah, well, the uh, idea of the review really started with uh, Will and I trying to work out what was wrong with the first patient that we've uh, described in the paper. And uh, as we struggled to find the diagnosis and after discussing uh, this with Anthony, we, and by we I mean mainly Will, concluded that the patient had adult stills disease. Anthony is uh, an expert in auto-inflammatory diseases, but It's important to point out that Will and I are not experts in these diseases. Will was a registrar when he wrote the review and has just started his career as a a stroke fellow in a neurointerventional stroke, and I'm a general neurologist. And I think it's fair to say that many neurologists, especially older ones like myself, don't know much about auto-inflammatory disease. I'd heard about adults' uh, stools disease in the past, but never really understood what it is. I'd seen a young patient with Muckle-Wells syndrome years ago, and I'd seen a patient with uh, familial Mediterranean fever with aseptic meningitis, but I never really appreciated how these disorders uh, fell under the umbrella of an auto-inflammatory disease or how relevant they were to neurologists. Now, Will presented our first patient to a neurology meeting in New Zealand and a member of the editorial board of practical neurology was at the meeting and afterwards uh, said that uh, it would be helpful to share our experience with other neurologists. So this article is really the result of our learning about auto-inflammatory diseases. What we've done is uh, tried to provide an approach for neurologists to think about these conditions and we wanted to share it with uh, other neurologists. So that's how it all came about. That's fantastic. And, and I think you've done exactly that. It's, it's a really accessible sort of summary and, re- and review of those things. As, as you say, these are, are scary cases when you come across them. They're, they're the ones that terrify me as I think about being a new consultant. And um, it struck me reading the review that actually the most important thing is just thinking about the diagnosis. 
Will, when would we expect to see these patients? What's the clinical scenario we'd come across them? And what do you think are the main clues that should make us alert to the possibility of an inflammatory syndrome? Yeah, I think um, in my few years of training, I've probably seen a handful of these patients. Um, And that's probably more than I can say about some of the other more classical sort of primary neurological conditions that I'm expected to know about that I've tested for many times. You know, your Eglon 5, DPPX, all those sorts of rare antibodies. And I think I've probably seen maybe five to 10 of these patients with presumed sort of auto-inflammatory syndromes. And I guess almost by definition, they present in a whole range of different ways, which is sort of, it was hard for us to, um, I guess, provide a, a guide on, you know, when to think about these patients. But I guess in general, if you have a patient who's got unexplained evidence of systemic inflammation, so these are patients with fever, which it tends to be relapsing, patients with elevated acute phase reactants, so high CRP, high neutrophil count, um, and an unexplained neurological syndrome. So this is not just, you know, any old patient with any old neurological disorder. This is someone that you're probably perplexed about what's causing their syndrome and they've got um, sort of features of systemic inflammation. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is, Anthony might touch on this, but essentially if patients have unexplained multi-system disease, so these are disorders of, of innate immunity and that means that, you know, the immune system is, um, you know, affecting the body in a non-specific way. And that means that they tend to have, you know, lots of manifestations. So skin, um, often have rash, they often have arthralgia or arthritis. Um, they might have liver involvement or cardiorespiratory involvement. So they'll tend to be patients, um, you know, who have more than just you know, neurological involvement, although neurological involvement might be a primary feature. And then finally, if patients have been treated with corticosteroids for some reason, they'll tend to improve, although that, um, you know, that may or may not happen, but they'll tend to improve. Um, and then I guess, um, you know, are there specific neurological manifestations of these disorders? I think probably you could generalize and say that aseptic meningitis or meningoencephalitis, particularly if it's a neutrophilic one, patients with sort of sensorineural hearing loss, um, particularly if it's on a background of multi-system disease, Um, and then patients with peripheral neuropathy on a background of multi-system disease. But I think broadly, you know, if I was um, considering something like SLE in a patient, if I was considering infective endocarditis, lymphoma, mitochondrial disorders, then I'd potentially be considering an auto-inflammatory disorder. That's fantastic. Thank you. Anthony, you're the first non-neurologist we've had on here and it's, it's fantastic to have your expertise as well. Could you talk us through mechanistically what's happening in these patients and, and how it's distinct from other uh, immune conditions? So first of all, congratulations to Will for um, describing really well what's actually happening. This is a dysregulation of the innate immune system. And one of the tricky things I think is there's often a significant clinical overlap here. So a lot of these people coming in uh, look like they've either got sepsis or something else because those markers of a 
monocytic, macrophage, neutrophilic uh, lead process, especially when you're thinking about uh, meningitis, which when you first see them, you know, you're always thinking about infection when you see a process like that. So it, it's a diagnosis that you tend to sort of um, consider once you've gone through your diagnostic sieve and said, well, if there isn't, you know, a, an infection driven process here, what is the provoking insult? And so, um, you know, they've got a lot of cardinal features where fever is present, abdominal symptoms, cutaneous articular features, and they may have, you know, a background rheumatic condition as well. And that's probably one of the more important things is to look historically about what the context of this patient is. Do they have those sort of patterns of a relapsing condition, which, you know, chances that people don't get septic uh, over and over again with those stereotypical presentations. Different to maybe sort of classical pure autoimmune diseases, which are mediated by B cells and T cells, those ones that we're a bit more familiar, um, the real useful clue here is the lack of high TETA autoantibodies, or in some other cases, if you've got access to them, antigen-specific T cells. Those tend to be something that you see more in the research space. But they're quite difficult to sort of tease out in terms of what's going on because these are essentially two parts of the immune system that are really sort of intertwined. And so I kind of think of auto-inflammatory disorders and autoimmune disorders as a single group of diseases made up of a large spectrum of immunological abnormalities and autoimmune disorders sort of sit down one end and autoinflammatory disorders down the other. And that's kind of a useful way of thinking about what's happening in the uh, immune system. That's fantastic. Thank you. And you mentioned both of you, the neutrophilic meningitis, which uh, really struck me when you, I was reading through those cases as a, a key feature. Is That's presumably because it's the innate immune system acting that you get that. Yeah, definitely. That, that's what distinguishes it from sort of other disorders in terms of, you know, more classical autoimmune diseases. So it's looking again for that monocytic, neutrophilic driven process without evidence of infection. Yeah, thank you. That's brilliant. And Anthony, I'm going to stick with you for a moment. Presumably most of these have have a genetic basis, even if it's not been identified yet. You mentioned in the paper some environmental triggers or factors that might influence it. I just wondered if you could talk us through any environmental triggers we should be aware of um, and maybe the genetic basis for um, for the majority of these conditions. So uh, Neil just sort of reported before some of the more historical disorders that we know in terms of auto-inflammatory disorders, so things like familial Mediterranean fever, hyper-IgD, which was called familial uh, Hibernian fever. So all of these titles sort of suggest, uh, again, a genetic link because they tended to occur in families. Those are the sort of classical monogenic disorders. And still, even with genome-wide uh, association studies, they make up a relatively small proportion of the disorders, maybe in somewhere in the order of 20% of these disorders. So the vast majority are probably polygenic, and that makes it, you know, something that we'll see potentially, in my case, as an adult doctor, occurring slightly later on in life, where many of these other monogenic disorders occur uh, during the sort of paediatric age range. The other thing to sort of be aware of in terms of other environmental factors is that's a big area of research at the moment. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in, 
you know, um, things like gut microbiota in terms of what people have seen during observation, you know, a limited frame of microbiota in the guts of these people. Other things that are probably more classical, like EBV-driven disease that you see. So there are lots of different associations that we have to sort of probably just keep in our mind. But I suspect future research will sort of explore some of those things a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And a fascinating area. Do you think there's more to come from the genetics as well? There's sounds like there's new syndromes sort of constantly being described. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, in the UK and the US, there are a lot of uh, research groups looking at these disorders. So one of the cases that we talk about, um, this condition called Vexus syndrome, you know, that's a new genetic disorder. And so a lot of people are gathering up these cases, like the three that we've talked about, and looking at them to understand what potentially is happening at not only an immunological level, but at a genetic level. So looking for those predisposing genetic um, risk factors, so to speak, that may sort of, you know, you get one hit and you get subsequently others over time. Thought we might focus on a, a couple of conditions in a little more detail and perhaps the more common ones that we might encounter. I think I'm right in saying that familial Mediterranean fever is the commonest of the conditions you describe and perhaps more often associated with neurology than others. Uh, Will, I wondered if you could just talk us through the sort of more classical presentation or neurological manifestations that you'd see with, with familial Mediterranean fever. Yeah, sure. I think... Um Familial Mediterranean fever is the most common monogenic um, auto-inflammatory disorder, as sort of Anthony was alluding to, um, whereas a lot of the other disorders are polygenic. But um, I think as an adult neurologist, maybe 10% of patients um, would present with this disorder after the age of 20. So potentially you might encounter it, you know, for the first time. And the common neurological manifestations, uh, I think associated with FMF would be sort of myalgia um, or myositis, which often follows a period of exercise and has characteristic sort of high signal on T2-weighted imaging. And then the other one, which I've alluded to before, is a recurrent or chronic aseptic meningitis. Um, and I think that's typically a neutrophilic sort of picture on, um, on CSF, and it will typically respond to culture scene. And then there's other sort of case reports of other manifestations such as um, demyelination, ischemic stroke and um, pres, but that's sort of at the sort of case report type level. And then patients who have untreated FMF for a long period of time uh, will develop sort of AA amyloidosis and then develop peripheral neuropathy as a consequence. I must say, uh, having trained in New Zealand, we don't have a large um, group of the ethnicities that are that are, tend to be affected by FMF, but I don't know if Anthony has a comment on that. Yeah, I think that's generally true. Um, probably in the UK, you would see uh, more people from the Mediterranean basins who make FMF a more common diagnosis. But you know, if you go to somewhere like Turkey, FMF is you know pretty common, even though it's a rare disease, but much more common in those areas than we would see here in New Zealand. Fantastic. Thank you. And, and Anthony, just sticking with you for a minute, what could you talk us through what's going on mechanistically there? So where's the problem? 
So yeah, this is really a disorder, and actually for a lot of them, it's about uh, interleukin-1 uh, problem. So it, it is a genetic disorder in the MEFV gene, um, but essentially you've just got uncontrolled interleukin-1, which causes obviously uh, often unprovoked relapsing inflammatory condition. And the other condition that, that really fascinated me and which we hear a lot of in, in Grand Rounds, as I think, Will, uh, you presented your first case, is, is adult onset stills disease. Again, I think there were some specific manifestations. Perhaps you could just talk us through your case and how they presented um, and mention some of the specific neurological manifestations that we see with adult onset stills disease. Yeah. So there's, I guess there's sort of specific manifestations of quite a non-specific diagnosis. There's no specific test for um, adult stills disease and the, the criteria that's used to diagnose it, the Yamaguchi criteria, are reasonably loose. That's probably the first thing to say, but um, I guess this was the case that um, got Neil and I interested um, because Neil initially saw this patient sort of a couple of years before um, I'd started training. And at that time, I think he'd presented from a neurological point of view with sort of gait ataxia. He developed a third nerve palsy and, and bilateral tinnitus. And he hadn't presented to hospital with those problems. He'd, he'd presented with sort of joint pain, fevers, high CRP, high neutrophil count and anemia and also thrombocytopenia. And, and it was only after a couple of days that he developed those neurological manifestations. And then he had an MR scan, which had non-specific sort of T2 hyperintensities, and then contrast enhancement of the of the affected third nerve. And at that stage, his CSF was a little bit abnormal. He had nine, nine white cells, um, and it was predominantly lymphocytic at that stage, high protein and a, and a low glucose. And I don't think that he'd had any corticosteroids or anything at that time, and it just seemed to fade away and get better. And then I saw him as a consult two years later, and interestingly, he'd sort of presented with a, a same sort of um, vague syndrome. He'd come in with a bit of foot pain, initially referred to the orthopedic service, and then it sort of got worse, had fevers, CRP. And again, his, his platelets dropped down to like 25 um, so he was sort of under gen med and orthopedics. And then after about 24 hours, he became rapidly comatose. So he's admitted to the intensive care unit. Um, and he had an MR scan at that stage and it looked like Adam. So it, he just had these florid widespread T2 hyperintensities, which, you know, included the corpus callosum and he had a repeat CSF done at that time. So this is two years later and he had a neutrophilic, picture with 56% polymorphs and um, a white cell count of 30. And I think the neurologist at the time sort of thought he had ADEM and treated him with IVIG and corticosteroids. But the thing that didn't really make sense was, you know, ADEM, you know, typically just affects the central nervous system, although it might occur as a post-viral sort of thing. But, you know, this was a patient who had a relapsing sort of systemic inflammatory disorder, both times he had joints involved, he had a rash, he had high fever, and he had neurological manifestations. So we carried on on the 
corticosteroids. And every time that we weaned him down to sort of below 20 milligrams, his laboratory markers would go off. He'd develop, you know, a CRP above 100. His platelets would drop and then he'd become encephalopathic. And clearly after we'd done that a few times, I think it was three times after he'd presented um, and I'd seen him, it was obvious that, you know, this wasn't an infective disorder. This wasn't an autoimmune disorder because all his autoantibodies were negative. So therefore, and and we um, sort of looked for malignancy and lymphoma and that type of thing. So it had to be an autoinflammatory disorder. Um, And I think that's sort of what Anthony was alluding to is that he'd been worked up for infection. He'd been worked up for autoimmune disorder. He'd been worked up for malignancy and we'd excluded all of those things and he'd responded to steroids. And the only thing that was left is that he'd got a, a, has an autoinflammatory disorder. So yeah, I guess that's sort of a, um, a protracted explanation, but, um, once we reviewed, you know, the typical manifestations of Stills disease, um, there are some case series. So I think there's a reasonably recent um, case series of 187 patients and people diagnosed with Stills. And 8% of those had neurological manifestations of which a neutrophilic meningitis was the most common. So that's sort of similar to FMF and some of the other auto-inflammatory disorders. Um, and, you know, that was what our experience was with this particular case, at least the second time. And then in patients who have severe stills, which is probably, you know, true of our case, um, who have macrophage activation syndrome, which Anthony might want to talk about, um, the prevalence of neurological manifestations is much higher, so up to 25% of patients. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned macrophage activation syndrome, actually. And as we have a, an immunologist here to ask about it, it's something that I sort of hear mentioned in, in intensive care, as you say, with super sick patients. And I hadn't realised quite how high the neurological, uh, the rate of neurological complications were. Anthony, what, what's happening here in simple terms in the immune system? So this is really the worst case scenario of um, unregulated immune responses. So Essentially, this is the whole of the immune system essentially going nuclear, you know, affecting multiple systems, unregulated, a lack of apoptosis, uh, no autophagy. All of those systems that should turn off an inflammatory response are not able to be activated. And so when I think of macrophage activation syndrome, I think of it as a part of the spectrum of Uh, HLH, another disorder where you see similar sorts of uh, manifestations uh, with obviously hemophagocytosis um, and macrophage activation syndrome is just along that spectrum as well. Obviously that's uh, a disorder where a lot of laboratory findings are very indicative of that um, and these people are incredibly, incredibly sick. They'll often have diagnoses of other rheumatic conditions as well. And they essentially carry a very high mortality rate, partly because it takes time to recognize what's going on. And they often, as you know, we've just said, they go to ITU, they're treated for sepsis, but they just get sicker and sicker. 
Yeah, and is um, so HLH is hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, um, and does that happen with uh, with sepsis or with malignancy, or is it is it just in these autoinflammatory conditions? No, so we break it down into primary and secondary HLH. Primary just disorders are where you have a genetic preponderance. Um, most people think of the EBV-driven disorders where they sort of convert into um, having HLH. And then there are other groups where it's secondary, and that's more the lymphomas and the rheumatic conditions. Neil, I wonder if I could come to you and, and ask you what you think our role as neurologists is in these patients. Is it just managing the neurological complications, or do you think there's things that we should be looking for that perhaps other people aren't? Well, yeah, I think that we, as neurologists, I think we are sort of we have three roles with these conditions. Um, I think uh, you know, Will and Anthony have indicated that sometimes these patients just present with neurological symptoms, and uh, we'll be asked to they either be under our care or be they'll be referred to us, and uh, it's our responsibility to recognise the link between the neurological disorder and the undiagnosed systemic systemic illness. Um, the difficulty is that they're rare and hard diagnosis to make, but uh, uh, that's but when they present with uh, neurological symptoms, that's one area where we contribute. The second one, I think, is where somebody, one of these patients with autoinflammatory disease, is known to have it, but then develops neurological symptoms. And our role there is to rule out an unrelated cause for the patient's uh, neurological illness. I think usually, and Anthony may comment on this, but usually if they're known to have an autoinflammatory disorder and they present with neurological symptoms, there's usually some evidence that the underlying disease has flared up, uh, like a raised CRP or a recurrence of fever. And our third role is in the area of treatment, and that's not normally something that we would, a neurologist would do uh, solo, and it would usually be done in consultation with an immunologist or a, a rheumatologist. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Will has mentioned that these disorders are usually steroid responsive, and that's often the sort of first uh, treatment that a neurologist will try. And in fact, uh, the presence uh, of a response to steroids is a useful uh, clue to the diagnosis. Longer-term treatment would uh, nearly always be undertaken with the advice of an immunologist or by an immunologist alone. So I think they are the three sort of areas of dealing with patient presenting for the first time with neurological symptoms, those with known autoinflammatory disorders uh, who have a, a flare-up with some neurological symptoms and with management. And just focusing maybe a step back on, on the first presentation, if they come in, practical neurology is a great lover of chameleon and mimics, and that feels really important in these cases. Will's already taken us beautifully through through a case example, but I wonder if you can just talk us through, again, the important differentials to consider and, and things that we need to make sure we exclude. And, and I'm thinking particularly in that case, before we phone the immunologist, maybe about hematological malignancies or vasculitic processes, um, if we're thinking about a steroid trial. We, we tried to write a, a sort of differential diagnosis um, or differential diagnoses to consider in the paper, but it was so challenging because of the different ways that these patients can present. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to comment on that, Neil. Yeah, well, I think 
you probably covered it. I mean, the big three are infection, malignancy and autoimmune disease. And I think it would be true that nearly always you have to rule those things, those other alternative uh, diagnoses out before you make a diagnosis of auto-inflammatory syndrome. So, and I think the, the first patient uh, that we report illustrates that well, where we had a, an exhaustive search for a, a, an underlying uh, central nervous system and systemic infection, had uh, body scanning looking for malignancy and an extensive uh, search for uh, antibody-mediated disease to suggest there's an autoimmune disorder. Uh, so it's really they're the, the big three to uh, consider in the differential diagnosis. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there are other things, vasculitis and sarcoidosis also come into the differential diagnosis as well. Yeah, I was just going to comment on um, on Vexus syndrome specifically, just because it's a recently described disorder of, a, of an acquired somatic mutation. So it's caused by one particular mutation, but it has uh, many different ways of presenting. And some of the ways of presenting are disorders that we see as neurologists. So patients who have been diagnosed with Vexus syndrome um, have been described as having a giant cell arteritis type phenotype, relapsing polychondritis, polyarteritis nodosa. And those are all sort of phenotypes that we sometimes see having neurological manifestations. Um, so that's definitely something to consider in, when you're considering something like GCA, for example. Yeah, I, I think I'd probably think uh, initially about discussing a, a relapsing polychondritis or a vasculitic condition just with the rheumatologists. But should we be reaching out to our immunology colleagues instead or as well in these conditions? Anthony can comment on that. You can't say that with an immunologist on the call. <laughs> Actually, I think I think one thing I would say is Neil and Will have probably underplayed one of the cardinal things that we're always taught in medicine is to take a really good history. And actually, when Neil and Will sat me down about this first case, there was a there was a lot of information that was presented in the right way to say we really do have here a relapsing. Uh, sterile inflammatory condition and just framing things like that allows you to think of auto-inflammatory disorders you know there are things like hematological malignancies and auto-inflammatory disorders where you'll see overlap you'll see lymphadenopathy you'll see hepatosplenomegaly and so there's some really important clues about if you're thinking about malignancy maybe you need to look at their marrow maybe you need to do some flow cytometry on their uh, CSF or peripheral markers to rule out their disorders. So there's lots of, and that's where immunologists uh, sort of come into it as, well, what tests could we do to sort of narrow our diagnostic sort of uh, differential down to, to sort of be comfortable to make a rare diagnosis uh, disorder? And so that's, I guess, where, you know, as rheumatologists and immunologists, we start to sort of chuck our weight in to say, here's here's what we know about this disorder, here's the way that we sort of uh, diagnose the disorder. And actually, one of the things that's becoming really, really common is genetic panels. So although genetic panels are really good for the monogenic disorders, actually a lot of research laboratories are actually showing that these polygenic uh, mutations are present in patients like this. 
And so when we looked, for example, for Vexus, that was a really good example of an adult onset somatic mutation. So people are looking pretty hard for explanations to aid clinicians about these you know, these cases that we'll probably all have a couple in our lifetime, but not have a lot, for example. That's wonderful. I particularly love, and I'm just going to pick up on that, you've defined your group for me. So relapsing sterile inflammatory conditions, that's the uh, that's the bracket that we should uh, put these in. Um, you mentioned the, the genetic panels. I think there's a, a sort of two-tier system for those. Is that right? There's a, a base panel and then perhaps on a more research basis, you'd go looking for the less commonly reported mutations. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of centres in the UK and the US that um, will offer, you know, your standard genetic panel looking for the known monogenic disorders. And then they'll often extend their panel uh, to look for the the rarer disorders. So, for example, when we send off our tests, we send through a description of the disorder. So you'll often get almost like a second consult from uh, laboratory scientists and clinicians at the other end who sort of help to guide some of the tests as well. So that's always really useful. That's. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that point. That picks up really nicely from a conversation we were having on the last podcast about paraneoplastic syndromes and, and the benefit of knowing the clinical context when you're looking for the, uh, the underlying cause. And, and how useful that is. And, and I think the point that they made there, and, and I'd probably reiterate here, is reaching out to those centres if you've got a case that doesn't make sense, perhaps like your, like your Vexus syndrome. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it was interesting because I can't remember what year it was. This tells you how long ago it potentially was. But it was, I think it was, the paper on Vexus was published like, around New Year's Eve and it's one of those things that sort of pops up in your email inbox I was thinking what a sad New Year's Eve for me but I read through it and I, I, it just dawned on me that I think this is so and so who was a patient where we just were completely trying to get him to fit a diagnostic box that was already existing but reading this paper was like reading a narrative of this patient's clinical journey you know the response to really high dose steroids but the lack of response to other more classical sort of uh, anti-inflammatory drugs or anti-rheumatic drugs or even targeted therapies and so it's one of those things where you know serendipity is a beautiful thing and um, in this case you know we took a blood sample sent it off and yeah got an email saying hey your guys got vexus yeah, and I'm, I'm sure loads of people who, who listen to this podcast will go, I've had a moment like that. It's, it's a sort of a wonderful feeling in some ways that you, you just know in that moment what it is. Just for the last, last question, let's end with some optimistic news. I think these are all treatable. Um, Anthony, just, just to sort of finish off, could you, could you talk us through what the treatment options are and, and how people respond and maybe mention some of the new biological agents that, that are available? Yeah, so that has been one of the benefit of the huge area of research um, on the genetics of this. It's allowed us to not only use steroids, which as Will has already mentioned, these people tend to respond to steroids really well. Um, but obviously we know long-term steroids have a lot of deleterious effects when we use them at high doses for long periods of time. So because we know essentially the inflammatory picture going here, 
we're able to use more targeted therapies. So I think of the IL-1 agents, so anakinra, for example, canakinumab, rolonisept, they're all sort of targeting that um, IL-1 pathway. And other disorders, for example, have other targeted therapies. So I guess that's the beauty of knowing where in the immune system the dysregulation's happening because you're able to reduce the spread of the immunosuppression so that these people aren't sort of uh, having, you know, unintended suppression of other arms of the immune system that's unnecessary. Yeah, and are they more targeted to those with known mutations? Yeah, definitely they're targeted at um, those people with known mutations. That's where they came out of. But actually we see them working in other disorders that have uh, clinical characteristics that are the same. So people take them, they find that they work in other areas as well. Thanks. That's, that's fantastic. It's been absolutely sensational hearing input from all of you. Neil, I really see these podcasts as an opportunity to inspire our trainee listeners. And I think you uh, have been involved in some of the fellowships between uh, Australia, New Zealand and the UK. Perhaps you could encourage some of our listeners to consider a year overseas. Yes, well, I think in New Zealand it's it's almost mandatory because we're such a small country with uh, small departments. It's almost mandatory for a neurologist in training to do part of their training overseas somewhere. But I think uh, there are... Uh, fellowships in Australia and New Zealand. The, the Australian New Zealand are part of the Australian New Zealand Association of Neurologists. There are fellowships available in Australia and New Zealand for trainees with the um, the ABN. So uh, I think that most of those people have had a, a useful experience. Usually there's one or two that come to Australia or New Zealand each year and uh, I think there's some value for English or British uh, trainees to to come down to Australia and New Zealand for part of their training. Well, certainly everyone I know who uh, who has participated in the Australia Exchange program in the in the fellowship that the ABN run which for for listeners there's information available on the ABN website um, have have had an absolutely fantastic time and and really enhanced their training. Thank you all again for a really, really sensational podcast. It's been wonderful talking to you all uh, and to to demystify these conditions a bit. A reminder to listeners that you'll find the link to the paper on the description below the podcast. And I'd really encourage you to have a look through that and and take out the uh, clinical pearls that we haven't had time to cover. In particular, those cases that that just walk you through the conditions and and the diagnostic process uh, and the beautiful reference table with a summary of the clinical and neurological features of selected auto-inflammatory syndromes. I'd also just like to appeal to all of you to leave us a review on the iTunes page. Let us know what you think and whether there are ways we can improve these podcasts. If you're not already subscribed, please follow us on PN Podcasts to get these episodes directly to your device each month. And for regular news and updates, follow us at Practical Neural on Twitter too. Thanks everyone for listening. And again, huge thanks to our incredible international guests. <laughs>